You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You can't trust somebody just because they act the part. You know, there's a lot of good liars out there who will look you in the face and tell you a bold-faced lie, and you will absolutely believe it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me as always is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. As always, we've got some interesting stories to share, and later in the show, we've got Joe's interview with security researcher Justin White, who shares his experiences doing red teaming and penetration testing. And we are back. Joe, what uh, story do you have to share with us this week? My story comes from Zelka Zors over at HelpNet Security. There is a security company, a cloud security company called Avanon. It's warning about a new phishing attack that they're calling Fishpoint. The targets of this attack are users of Microsoft's Office 365 product and Avanon is saying that 10% of their customers who use Office 365 have seen this attack come through. The user receives an email containing a link to a SharePoint document. That's why it's called Fishpoint. Okay. Get it? Very clever. Right. But the email looks identical to a standard SharePoint invitation to share. Yeah. Avanon, as you might expect, says that their platform protects against it. But then they go on to say you can also protect yourself with two-factor authentication and, of course, phishing training because the link in the email is what's malicious. Just uh, FYI, I mean, SharePoint is Microsoft's file sharing framework, I suppose, behind the right. scenes. You can you can set up a SharePoint site where you can have folders to share documents with your colleagues and, and so on. So if you and I want to work on something together, I create a SharePoint site and in that site I upload a document and then you and I can collaborate on writing that document. It's very common workflow in a lot of companies to say, there's a document in SharePoint, let's work on it together. If you're somebody that uses Office 365, you're probably somebody that also uses SharePoint. So if you receive this email, it will not look out of place to you. This could be a very compelling phishing attack. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's going to be different is the URL in the link. And you can't see the URL because it's masked with text, but the URL in the link is malicious. So can you hover over the, the URL? Yeah, you can hover see? over it and you right. can take a look at it. Which, of course, is harder on mobile, as we've talked about. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot harder on mobile. We've talked a lot in the past about how the UI on mobile makes it easier for fishers to get around what would otherwise be on a desktop system, something obvious. Because right. the real estate on the UI is prime, all yeah. of it. So you take away the information and people can't see that they're going to a phishing site. Yeah, you, you can do it, but it's it's harder to it's extra steps. Right. And it's not as easy to do. And I think lots of people don't even know how to do it on their mobile devices. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, a couple things at play here. They're using the fact that, number one, there are a lot of people who use Office 365. Right. And so there are a lot of people who are using Office 365 who are also using SharePoint. Yep. It's so a, it's that numbers game. It's a big pool. Yeah. Big pool of people. And again, as you say, if you get something that looks like a legit SharePoint file sharing notification, at first glance, it'd be easy for you to click through. Right. The question is, are you expecting this? At some point in time, you kind of have to slow the business process down and you have to say, am I expecting this? Let me make a phone call. Who would, who would have shared a document with me? I don't know what you do in this case. I mean, if you hover over the link 
and you see that it's not your SharePoint server, mm-hmm. then you're done. Bob's your uncle, right? You've identified this successfully. If you just click on the link, there's no guarantee that it's going to the, to where you think it is. Right. An additional element to this is that it's difficult for an organization to blacklist all things related to SharePoint because that is something that people need to use to get their work done. It is. So they're taking advantage of that as well. Right. How can uh, folks uh, protect themselves from this, Joe? Just be vigilant. I don't know that two-factor authentication will protect you 100% against something like a session jacking attack. At the individual contributor level, it all comes down to vigilance and diligence. Right. And making sure that where you're going is where you think you're going. All right. Well, it's something to look out for. My story this week is all about putting trust in the things around us that we interact with every day and things that we consider benign. I trust this chair and believe it to be benign. <laughs> right, right until the moment when one of the legs gives out and, exactly. and tosses you onto the ground. Well, similarly, I think most of us probably trust our USB cables. Yes. I have them sprinkled all over my house yep, where I, just where I work. Two, two new ones yesterday. Right. They arrived yesterday. We use them for charging our devices. That's probably what they get used most for, uh-huh. charging our, our mobile devices. These days, more and more laptops are coming with USB-C cables. So that sort of push to standardization where you don't have you know one-off dedicated brand-specific charging cables... We use these cables we, and we don't think about it. We, we don't think that the potential is there for the cable itself to be a vector for bad things to happen. That's right. But of course, uh, researchers have looked into this <laughs> and uh, there's folks at an organization called Security Research Labs. They've published some research on what they call bad USB. They were talking about taking these benign USB devices and attaching hardware to them. So you have some sort of logic chip, some sort of you know extra bit of uh, electronics in there right. that can do things. Yeah. That can pretend to be a keyboard, for example. Yeah, absolutely. There's a tool out there called a rubber duck mm. that looks like a USB thumb drive. Yeah. But this thing is actually a programmable keyboard interface. Mm-hmm. So you can write some code and have it execute that code once it's plugged into a computer. Now, what attracted my attention to this was a, a recent story about a different set of researchers are calling USB Harpoon. USB Harpoon. And this is a USB cable. Actually, uh, Kevin Mitnick is in on this, okay. uh, who's a well-known uh, hacker and actually hopefully future guest on this show, okay. trying to line up in an interview with him. Some other researchers, Olaf Tan and Dennis Goh, they're from the RFID Research Group, and Vincent Yu of Scion Security. So they collaborated based on an idea from another gentleman on Twitter who goes by the handle at MG. And so this notion here is to take... A a cable, a regular charging cable, if you imagine, uh, I think, the, you know, the white Apple iPhone charging cable. Right. Right. G- as generic as it comes. Yep. Take a cable like that and make a cable that looks exactly like that, but has this malicious payload built in. And these folks went out and did it. Yeah. It's actually pretty easy if you know how to do it. There are microprocessors or microcontrollers out there that are remarkably small and mm. remarkably powerful. AVR, Atmel, I guess now they're microchip. They got purchased a couple of years ago. You know, they're the ones that power the Arduino board, which is an open source embedded system platform. But they mm-hmm. also make more powerful microcontrollers than the one that's on the Arduino. And they are remarkably cheap. Yeah. So these folks, basically, they had a, a run of these imitation cables made And boy, do they look just like a regular Apple charging cable. 
If you if you had, saw one of these laying on a desk, there would be nothing that made you think there was any sort of malicious payload involved with this cable. It just looks like a regular old cable. You got me worried about these two cables I purchased yesterday, Dave. Well, I mean, it's an interesting point. How do you know? I don't what's know. The, what's the chain of custody of something you buy on Amazon? Yeah, and that's and, exactly where I bought these. I yeah. have no idea where these things came from. Right. Is, is there a device you can plug them into to verify that there, they're there not There is. There's anything? a USB protocol analyzer, and I actually have one at my office. Okay. So I think before I use these, I haven't used them yet, I think I'm going to plug it into the USB protocol analyzer and see what I can get. Just make sure they're not up to no good. Right, exactly. Now, now are you familiar with the notion of USB condoms? I am. I am. This is something that you get to protect yourself against malicious USB outlets. So let's say you're at an airport mm. and somebody has sat down and, and replaced the USB outlet that is at the airport or under the chair at the airport. Mm -hmm. And now when you plug in your Android or iPhone device to charge it, it's malicious and it attacks your phone. So what you do is you get what's called a USB condom, which just has the two power connectors so that all you get is charging. A USB connector on the inside has four wires, and, and two of them are power and two of them are data. Mm. So this one just eliminates the data wires, and all you get is power. Okay. And that's that's how it protects you against that. Right. But these guys <laughs> have come up with the idea. Again, this is uh, at uh, an underscore MG underscore on Twitter. He says, bad USB cables wouldn't be complete without bad USB condoms. <laughs> This. So he jokes that he's tempted to get a run of these made for the vendor area at the next security conference. Right. So uh, here's something that looks that is designed as a security product, but will actually compromise your phone. Does the opposite of what it says. So you think you're being secure by using this device. I mean, what a what a misdirection, right? Yeah, this is brilliant. I think that's a phenomenally great idea. Oh, wow. I'll be more secure if I use this USB condom. Well, the USB condom has malware on it. <laughs> the joke's on you. Right. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't I don't know how I feel about the good guys making up these. I, I mean, research is research, of course, but I, I think this is sort of one of the dark sides of our industry is, is yeah. this impulse to I'll show everybody. I've heard that from a number of other researchers. And I often say that the easiest part of this job is just saying, here's something bad that can happen. And then you wait around and you go, see? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. But to actually go out and spend the money to have something manufactured, obviously that's one thing for research purposes. But the, the idea that someone would then distribute them to prove a point I find that troubling. Oh, yeah. That's probably unethical. Yeah, it crosses <laughs> right. a line there. You can make it and say, hey, here's a proof of concept device. But yeah, don't distribute them. Yeah. That, you should not do that. All right. Well, interesting stories this week. It's time to move on to our catch of the day. All right, Joe, this one was sent in by a listener whose name is Peter. This was actually a fax that was sent to his father. So already we're targeting someone in their later years. Right. I'm already suspicious because when was the last time you received a fax, Dave? It's been a while. Right. But I am not as old as <laughs> the people. I think a lot of older people have fax machines. I, I don't know. My my father has a fax machine. Yeah, and it's, so does mine. It's a three-in-one like yep. fax scanner or yeah, printer. Exactly, exactly. And his isn't hooked up. And he gave me his old one. And I actually have a fax machine. I can send faxes, but I do not receive them. Right. All right. Well, uh, we've we've changed the names to protect the innocent here. So we're gonna, just going to say that the target of this is, is named Mr. Johnson. And the folks who sent this out are claiming to be from the UK. Uh -huh. So, of course, I'm going to read this using a ridiculous British accent. Very good. 
Dear Mr. Johnson, my name is Keith Oliver. I am partner at Peters and Peters Solicitors, LLP, a law firm based in United Kingdom. Though this transaction might sound unrealistic and apprehensive, but I have the requisite experience to handle same. I decided to contact you after a series of attempts to locate the relatives of the deceased. There is an unclaimed permanent life insurance policy insured for States dollars with a top life insurance company in Abu Dhabi, UAE. Mm. The policyholder was one of my personal clients, late engineer Arthur Johnson, who worked with energy company in Abu Dhabi. He died in a ghastly car accident in London seven years ago. Since his death, no one has come forth for the claim, and all my efforts to locate his relatives have proved abortive. The insurance company code stipulates that all unclaimed insured permanent policies must be turned over to the abandoned property division of the state after seven years. In view of the fact that you share the same last name and nationality with the deceased, I solicit for your consent to partner with me for the claim of this policy benefit as the beneficiary of the claim. The cost of changing the policy to your name will be beard, beard, it says beard, will be beard by the attorney. If you consent to the above request, all proceeds will be processed on your behalf. With your approval, I propose the sharing of the proceeds as follows. 45% each and 10% to charity organizations. This transaction is 100% risk-free as there will be no (laughs) violation of any civil or criminal laws. (laughs) I have all the necessary documentation to expedite the process in a highly professional manner. I will provide all the relevant documents to substantiate your claim as the beneficiary and it may take up to 30 working days from date of your receipt of your consent. Kindly note that this transaction is strictly confidential and shall not be shared with a third party without my approval. Many thanks for considering my request and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Please contact me via email. Your earliest response to this matter would be highly appreciated. Sincerely, Keith Olivier, Head of Private Client Attorney. We have already violated Mr. Olivier's confidentiality agreement <laughs> by reading reading this email here on this yeah. podcast. What do you think, Joe? Uh, well, a couple things. First off, why does a British lawyer give me uh, an amount in dollars, in American mm. dollars? Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Why not pounds? Very specific amount. Right. Ten Maybe million that's conversion rate. Almost eleven million dollars. Yeah. Right. Could be. There's a couple missing articles early on, mm-hmm. and as you pointed out, he said beard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the same scam that's been going on for years. It's the Nigerian print scam, just with something else. And oh, my favorite part is that they want—he wants to give ten percent to charity. They're, you know, they're really these are good people. Yeah, they are good. They're, they are generous, <laughs> good people looking out for charity. Absolutely right. I wonder too if because of the I don't know that uh, Americans are I think by default sort of enamored with Brits. We trust them. Well, most you know? Americans are. <laughs> yeah, I other, don't trust other than them, you, right? right? <laughs> Who trusts no one. Right. Other than you. Particularly the British. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those of us who enjoy uh, doing ridiculous British accents, I wonder if that's part of it, too, that a British solicitor couldn't possibly be up to no good. (laughs) Actually, if I met a British solicitor, my inclination would be to trust that person. Right. Yeah. But this is not a British solicitor. No. No. Who who knows what would happen? Obviously, uh, a scam targeting the elderly, an old school scam with kind of a, a new twist. Right. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got Joe's interview with Justin White. 
And we are back. Joe recently spoke with Justin White. He's a security consultant and penetration tester. Here's Joe's conversation with Justin White. What's your objective when you're red teaming? So red teaming has a lot of different meanings depending on context, who you talk to. Me and in my circle, whenever we say red teaming, we really just mean it's a object-driven security assessment penetration test that's very broadly scoped, which usually, not always, but usually includes physical break-in as well and almost always includes exploiting the human aspect, meaning I can make phone calls, call up your employees, pose to be somebody else. But ultimately, I'm just trying to break in to your system, maybe just one system in particular, maybe just the business as a whole. But I can do it through sort of any reasonable means short of driving a tank through the middle of your conference center. (laughs) All right. So let's focus on that human aspect when you're trying to get in somewhere. How do you start that process? What do you do first? Anytime we're going to approach a red team, especially whenever we're going to be talking to people, we need to sound legitimate. So it always starts with research. It's mostly open source intelligence gathering. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of a lot of tools we use to sort of scrape things from Google, all of the different social media, Facebook, LinkedIn. And basically, we're just trying to aggregate all this information about the company as well as about some key individuals or at least key departments that we may try to exploit. So it always starts with usually about two days of just research and not actually interacting with the target at all. And then once you have all that research, you take the next step, I imagine, which I would guess is calling them and trying to elicit more information. Is that right? Generally, it depends. Uh, Sometimes we may be focusing more on a physical thing, at which point we'll actually try to just walk up to the security guards. If we can't slip by them miraculously right off the bat, we'll try to walk up and maybe just try to act stupid, act sort of lost, confused, or, hey, I'm waiting on my buddy. He should be coming down in a minute. Maybe try to engage them, observe things more close up. What I typically try to do is, you know, find something to chat about. And if you can just get people talking inadvertently, they will give you information that you can use later to your advantage. So whether I'm doing it in person or on the phone, I'm always just trying to get little bits of information from different individuals that I can take and pivot to other individuals or other places. And I can use that to my advantage to sound more convincing that I am who I say I am or I'm here to do what I said to do because, you know, I know this name. I know about this thing that's going on at the company. Did you see what happened at the holiday party? That was crazy. You know, I've got little anecdotes like that to tell to make myself just sound more legitimate. So you you start by gathering little tiny pieces of information, and then you kind of aggregate that up, just standard open source intelligence like you were talking about. And then at that point, is it time to try to actually start the penetration, try to get in? Well, eventually, you know, this is a time box thing we do. Unfortunately, unlike a real attacker, we don't have practically unbounded time. You know, I've got maybe two weeks at best, maybe four weeks to try to accomplish my goals. So yeah, at some point, prepared or not, you have to try to escalate and accomplish some objectives. And how fast you move really just depends on how well you're able to gather intelligence and come up with some sort of strategy. Because if you just walk in somewhere or call somebody up, 
really not knowing what your pretense is, who you're pretending to be, or exactly what you're trying to get out of them, you're probably not going to get anywhere. You, you really can't wing it at all. What have you found to be the most difficult thing to get by? What's the hardest thing to overcome when you're trying to convince somebody that you're somebody you're not? Usually it comes down to they're just following the rules. I'm sorry, sir. I really want to help you, but our policy is this and this. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing for the company. It's a bad thing for me. But also that what it tells me is that companies really need to be sure that their policies are sensible because the employees, for the most part, will follow policies. However, sometimes we find that their policies have gaps in them and it's possible just following the policies that exist that you can exploit information from them. So you have to have good policies and generally well-trained employees will follow them, unfortunately for me. And that makes your job harder. So I like to ask everybody that does social engineering, what's the one tip you would give to people to make them less susceptible to these kind of attacks? Really, it's just important that you follow company policies and procedures. And I had mentioned that earlier, but as a realist, I know that sometimes we're inclined just it's human nature. That's why this whole social engineering works in the first place. It's human nature to want to help people. So whenever I educate people about these things, I try not to sell it as absolutes, as in under absolutely no circumstances are you to violate, you know, this rule, this rule or this rule. But in reality, there are situations where the situation necessitates helping someone out that bends the rules a little bit. So the advice I always give them is, do you absolutely know who you're talking to? If someone calls you up that you don't know, you're absolutely not breaking the rules for them. If somebody calls you up and they sound like someone you're pretty sure you know, don't break the rules for them because you're not certain of who they are. For the most part, unless they are there in person and you physically recognize who that person is, absolutely don't bend the rules. And then you have to even get a little bit more diligent than that, because what if this is somebody that you do know, but they just got fired and they're asking you to badge them into the office so they can go in there and, you know, steal things or unplug the servers, you know, just whatever to, you know, just because they're angry. So basically what I say is if you know the situation and you know the person well and you can help them in some way do so, but be diligent about, you know, knowing exactly who it is you talk to, you know, know the situation, know that that person didn't just get fired, which means before you help them out, say, hold on just a minute, call up your boss or whoever it is who can also verify their story from another angle. You're just not taking their word for it. And then maybe let them in, but do your diligence. Don't just let them in and turn them loose in the office. You say you left your badge at your desk. Would you mind walking me to your desk and letting me verify that indeed your ID badge and such and such is here? Show me your computer. Show me that you can log in to the domain if it's a situation where you're not sure of what's going on. Stick to the policy. When you don't, do your diligence. Follow up and stay on it. See things to the end. And make sure that whatever you do for them, you let them into the office, make sure they're not, you know, running through filing cabinets and going crazy. Have you ever come across something that just surprised you that you were you were surprised at how easy something is? 
Oh, yes. Actually, this was, you know, I can't chalk it up to anything but pure luck. There was one business that we were trying to break into, and they had tightened down their security based upon a physical penetration test that had happened the previous year. So they decided to just go all out and decide that nobody was getting in there who didn't belong. So we came in there figuring, okay, in situations like this where we don't figure we're going to be able to tailgate or we're going to be able to, you know, talk our way past guards, we're going to have to find some surreptitious way to get in there. We're going to have to pick open a side door or find an open window we can crawl through, something like that. It just so happens on the first day, first day of the assessment that we were actually on site. We have, we had done our couple days of prep, doing all the research and everything. First day on site, my coworker drops me off near the front door in the car park and I'm walking up to the door and it had, it was a, what they called it a poor man's man trap. So instead of a revolving door that you have to badge in and it rotates just enough for one person to go through, they had two sets of doors that you had to badge in each one of them to get through. Just so happens there were two employees walking out spaced the same distance of the doors apart because the doors were about 15, 20 feet apart. So I managed to tailgate past the first one, act like I was putting my badge up to the reader on the second one when the second employee walked out. I'm inside the building. There's still a guard desk. However, just completely by luck, the guard had turned around because somebody in the back room had asked him a question and he spun his head around and I managed to walk right past the check-in point. After that, everything was easy. We accomplished all the goals of the first day because all of their security relied on that perimeter security. Okay, Justin White, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again, Joe. Pleasure to be here. All right. Lots of good take homes there from uh, that interview. You know, I think the thing that, that was most interesting to me that I haven't heard a lot of other people talk about is this notion of your company having good policies. Right. That was one of the points that I actually put down, too, is that his job is a lot harder when people follow those policies. Right. And he said, you know, well-trained employees tend to follow the policies, but you have to have policies that aren't full of holes. Correct. Like the example he talks about of getting access to somebody or getting access and, and completely winning the penetration testing gig just because he compromised the one layer of security they had, mm -hmm. which was a perimeter security. They said, we're going to put all of our eggs in the perimeter basket. We're going to have a great perimeter. And it's going to be very hard for someone to get in. And it sounds like it is very hard for someone to get in. But by luck, Justin got in. Well, and I wonder, too, does that give everyone inside a false sense of security that surely if anybody has gotten in here, they must be legit. So my guard is going to be down. I am 100 percent certain that it produces exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. A false sense of security. Thanks to all of you for listening, and thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about them at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey, all. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. 
That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.